Welcome to your commercial-free, uninterrupted investment show, sponsored by the SEC-registered investment firm, Wilsey Asset Management, a fiduciary firm owned and operated by President Brent Wilsey, who has been putting clients' investment needs first for over 40 years. The Smart Investing Show has been giving unbiased financial information for over 27 years on local radio stations right here in San Diego, providing you with fundamental analysis on stocks and investments you want to know about. Now, here are your hosts, Brent and Chase Wilsey. Well, hello and welcome to the Smart Investor Show. I'm Brent Wilsey, president of Wilsey Asset Management. Great to have you here with us today. Uh, got a lot of great things to talk about the show today. Got to talk about home sales, uh, credit card fees. I'm talking about those merchant fees that just irritates me when the merchant charges their customer that merchant fee. We'll talk more about that. Also, inflation decreasing. We got to talk about that because it's kind of goes back and forth. And then talk about short-term versus long-term thinking. Very important for investors to understand the difference. And then with me today, uh, Chase is still on vacation. With me is our CFP, our financial planner, Harrison Johnson. He's going to be talking about uh, withdrawal rates. Also, two changes in the SECURE Act. So let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Harrison, you ready this morning? Uh, you on there? How about now? I'm not hearing. I, yeah, I, I see his lights on there. Uh, let's what we got there. On this rainy day, we got this technical problem there already. <laughs> Is it just me? Uh, no, no. Okay, well. Um, all right, well, we're going to work on uh, that for a little bit here. So uh, while we get uh, Harrison on air here, uh, we're going to talk about the home sales. Because home sales, uh, they have been... And the front of thing, you hear good news, bad news about it. Well, for the 12 months in a row, are we all set there? How about now? Can you no, hear me now? No, so not yet. Uh, for 12 months in a row, existing home sales have been declining. Recent numbers coming out from December show a drop of 36.9% from December 2021. Month over month, we saw a decline of 0.7%. Now, not helping the situation is the median existing home sale price. This, this did increase 1.3% from a year ago to 359,000. Uh, the inventory of unsold homes has climbed to 980,000 as of the end of January, but it is still a very low amount of uh, supply of two more 2.9 months. And this is what is keeping the prices high. There's still a limited supply. That is changing. I'm starting to hear more people talking about, yes, I'm gonna sell my home, I'm gonna get out, uh, more people are doing it. So I think as time moves on, and again, it's not gonna be tomorrow, but over months to come, we'll see that uh, supply increase. Are we upset now? How about now? There All right, we yeah, go, we got you There you go, okay, so, <laughs> so I'll let you join in here. I don't know if you can follow me, but talking about that, I, ju I was just talking about how the uh, January still had the low amount of supply of 2.9 months there. Yeah, so interest rates on a 10-year treasury continue to increase. This will put more downward pressure on the housing market throughout 2023, and we will continue to see declining numbers in new and existing home sales. It, and, and this is something that, and I, I just, when people say, oh, I'm gonna buy a home, buy a home, I'm thinking, just kind of hold off a little bit longer, because I a little bit longer, you know, I'm thinking about 12 months or so. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just <clears> not seeing any reason to buy a home now. I, I think you'd be much happier if you waited. Uh, you talked to a lot of clients on the financial planning side. What, what, what do you say? Actually, I had a, a meeting <clears throat> this week where someone was considering buying a house, and they're like, well, should we do it? Does it make sense? Because, you know, a lot of people say, well, you don't want to buy a house for as an investment, right. which if you're buying a house that's a million dollars, it hopefully also is an investment. 
um, right. because you know it's such a large purchase. But I was talking to somebody who's in the Bay Area, and they're talking to a lender, they're talking to a, um, they're talking to a real estate agent, and both of them are okay. You know, it's always a good time to buy, and you guys can definitely afford this. And you know, there's definitely a little bit of bias there, right? Um, because they will, um, they want to get the deal done. But looking at the numbers, um, I agree, Brent. Right now, doesn't look like the best time to buy, and. People think that when you're renting, it's just throwing money out the window, um, which is not the right way to look at it. Because when you rent, yes, renting is an expense, but that cash outflow is pretty much in every case going to be lower than your cash outflow when you buy a house. When you buy a house, you don't just have the principal and interest. We have property taxes, which in California are pretty high, starting at one and a quarter percent when you buy a house. Plus, you have um, insurance, HOAs, maintenance is a huge thing that people mm-hmm. discount and don't fully understand. So, you might be able to rent something for $3,000 a month, but if you buy the house, that same house might cost you $6,000 a month in total outflows. And so, when you buy, you are hoping that the appreciation that you get in that home or the the growth and the equity that you get in that home is going to be larger than that difference between the rent and the buying price, which right now, if you're buying a house and we continue to see rates increase, we continue to see supply increase in the market, um, I don't think we're going to see any appreciation. And more likely, we're going to see prices continue to come down. Best case scenario, I think they stay the same. But what that means is you're paying you know, a much higher monthly amount for no additional appreciation on that home. So right now, I think it's definitely a better financial decision to look at renting. Um, I mean, I'm in this position right now. I would I would love to have a house, um, but I'm not going to do it unless it makes financial sense. Yeah, yeah, because you, you will regret it down the road and because what it could happen. And again, this is a possibility just based on all the facts we see and so forth that uh, down the road, you bought a million dollar home. It's possible a year from now that that home is now worth 10% less. You just lost $100,000. You yeah. put down 200, you lost a half of your down payment already. Yeah. Not including when people do silly things where they take out from their 401k or they take out from their IRA or because of that home they're going to stop putting into their 401k. These are big financial mistakes they make and this is where a financial planner like yourself really looks not at the emotional side but the number sides and work it out saying, "Yeah, you may want that home." We get it. And and when you have a family, I always do say it, it is different because you have a family, you want that school. When you do rent, I mean, I rent at a house right now. It's possible my landlord can say, you know what? Uh, I'm moving back in. You got to get out. Mm-hmm. Ah, shoot. That, that's not what you want to have happen, but it can happen. If you own your home, no one can kick you out unless you don't make the payments. A bank will kick yeah. you out, I guess. <laughs> but um, but it, it, it's just a different factor. So you got to look at everything. Again, that's what a true financial planner does. Look at the whole bowl of wax to see, well, what is really going on here? Should you buy that home? Should you not? And it's not just an emotional decision. And unfortunately, brokers make it many times to sell that home. They're salespeople. Mm-hmm. They make it an emotional decision. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that you have to look at is, you know, when you buy a home, you might be able to afford it right now, but how is your cash flow going to change over the next couple of years? Because when you buy a house, that's a 30 year loan. Yeah. So you're committing to 30 years of payments on that. So the couple that I was talking to, um, husband and wife, both working, both making income, but they don't have any kids yet. Well, right. if they do have some kids, either one of them is going to not work as much or not work at all, or you're going to have extra costs for daycare and um, you know extra costs like that. Right. So you might be able to pay for it right now, but in three years, if your income goes down, your expenses go up, now you're really on a crunch and you don't want to be in a situation where you're having a family, you're expanding, and you can't afford to live in the house that you're at. So you have to sell or take on additional 
debt somewhere else. Right. So you have to look at the, the long-term impact of that as well. And here's and that's why it, uh, my firm, Wealthy Asset Management, we set up so Chase and I do the investment part. Your whole job is to do the financial planning, to think about things that people won't think about because you don't have to spend any time at all saying, well, how do I invest this money? Your job is to think about what is best for those people financially uh, planning down the road. Uh, let's move on to credit card fees because running a small business, yes, it is very hard. One must handle all the expenses, new accounts and customers. But one thing that irritates me is when I go to a small business and I use my credit card and they try to ding me for the 3% credit card fee. To me, it's just an easy out for them, but it's really is nothing more than a cost of doing business and it's a convenient way for the customers to pay for their product. I've been going to the car wash, or I guess Brent has been, I've been going, going to the car wash. Brent, I've been going to the car wash place in Scripps Ranch for over 20 years. And the last time he was there, uh, he got charged a 3% credit card fee um, and said, that's the last time they will see him. I'd rather see a business increase their prices and include all their expenses than try to hit you with a 3% credit card fee. So what is next? Do they want us to pay their utilities at my firm? at Brent's firm, we do allow our clients to pay for financial planning fees by credit card, and I would never think of charging them a 3% fee. That's true, because yep. I, I take those credit cards, and yeah, we do not charge extra no. for that. Um, so I recommend people do it, because then they get the points. Yeah, so yeah. financial planning point there. Um, I'm all for small business, but if you want to charge a 3% credit card fee, you're doing something wrong, or you're being greedy. And, and, and that fee is called a merchant fee. It's a merchant fee, not a customer fee, mm -hmm. and it does irritate me. And you can kind of tell who wrote this as <laughs> you start talking there, because I'm the one that does go to the, to the car wash, and I've not gone and talked to the owner yet. But it just, I will not do business with a company that's going to charge me that three percent merchant fee. And I think that anybody else is like, eh, big deal, three percent. That's money that should be in your pocket. If you have a one to two percent cash reward card, we always talk about that's a great way to go. Mm -hmm. That's a cost of doing business. And I just will refuse to do business with, with a company that wants to charge me a 3% credit card fee. You take the hit, let me pay the way I wanna pay you. If I don't wanna pay cash, I don't wanna do, do a debit card, I wanna use a credit card fee. Um, you take the 3% hit, not me. I'm running into a lot of that right now because I'm getting married uh, in October of this year. And so we're talking with vendors and, and trying to get all that sorted out. And nobody wants to take credit cards at all. Everyone wants to get paid through Zelle or Venmo or, um, you know, something like that. So they don't have to deal with the merchant fee. And I'm, you know, I never use cash for anything. I always <laughs> use my credit card. So it's unusual for me. But yeah, I mean, I, I would rather just pay a little bit more than have them pass that fee along to us. I mean, it's a cost of doing business. And I had negotiated with people uh, that try to charge me that fee. And I say, look, if you charge, if you want to charge me that fee, I will go somewhere else. Now you have an option. If if my business is worth you three percent, which again, <laughs> I'm, maybe I'm spending hundred dollars. So if my business is worth three dollars to you. Don't charge me the fee. Mm -hmm. And and some business say, yeah, your business is worth it to me. And that's the thing we we've gone through this change in the economy that I don't like because businesses feel like, hey, we're entitled. We're entitled. No, the customer is still the one that is right all the time. Customers should be able to choose how they want to pay and not have to pay a certain amount because they want to pay this way. And and I think it will change as the economy does perhaps slow down a little bit more, businesses start going out of business. And this is the other thing too, it irritates me. I'm 66 years old, I've seen this before. Business start crying, oh, the economy's bad. It's because you're a bad business person. You charge <laughs> your customers, you don't do good service, you close your doors at five o'clock so, and, and people can't come to your business. I mean, 
That's why businesses fail. It's not because of the economy. It's because you ran the business poorly, including charging your customers 3%. Can you tell how irritated I am by this 3% fee? <laughs> you can see the passion coming <laughs> <Yeah>. out. <laughs> so, but anyway, so I, I highly recommend people, if, if you're being charged that, and even yourself, say, look, I, I want to use a credit card. I don't want to pay the 3% fee. Um, if you want to charge me that, I will look around for somebody else, mm -hmm. you know, and yeah. you know, give them the option. Do you want my business or not? Yeah. Because a customer, in my opinion, is still always right. Yeah, so. absolutely. Let's about inflation uh, decreasing, because I can to say that uh, I believe we'll see more decreases in inflation over time, because I look at the raw cost of the goods and the cost of shipping those goods. One cost is shipping a standard 40-foot container from China to California. The peak cost was in September 2021 with a cost of $12,000. Today, the average cost for that same 40-foot container is $1,444, which is a decline of $10,556, or 88%. Another reason why we think prices will continue to fall slowly going forward. And actually, yesterday, the PCE came out, and it ticked up a little bit, and the markets went down and so forth. It's not going to be a straight decline. Mm. These things are things where you look at raw materials, raw cost of goods, and so forth. Uh, there will be blips in the system because perhaps the PCE could have been higher because of oil did tick back up, gas prices went back up a little bit. So there's going to be things that change. So it's not going to be every single month we tick down. And I think the PCE was not up. I think it was like from 5.25, I think 5.38. It, it was a very small amount, mm -hmm. but the market, oh, you know, the, the Fed's going to keep raising rates and so <laughs> forth. This is why as an investor, you've got to look at investing in companies and businesses and stop looking at the doggone stock market because it'll drive you crazy every day. Yeah, especially on a day-to-day -day basis because when you take a step back, we know that this is going to be a bumpy ride. We yeah. know that inflation is an issue and <laughs> if it was a smooth process, then we wouldn't have anything to worry about. But, yeah. you know, it's baked into the stock market at all. Well, we think that uh, the Fed is actually going to decrease rates faster than they're saying, which they've given no intention of doing that. And so now when we're still continuing to see a little bit of hot inflation, people are freaking out about it, which again, we knew that this was going to be the process. Inflation is here. And so rates are going to have to stay high and we have to not make emotional decisions about that. And one thing we do talk about when uh, new people come to us for consultations, we do talk about how the average uh, trading volume on a normal market day is only 0.3% of the volume is actually trading. And that's what you're seeing. So don't panic over like, oh my gosh, the market went down 300 points and so far, they better sell and get out. Or No, look at what those businesses, and again, we always focus on that. What are the businesses doing? What will they do? And will they be 12, 18 months from now? Because right now we seem to be in this scenario where it's about trading, what the Fed's gonna do. If they think the Fed's gonna raise rates, the market sells off. If, oh no, somebody else come out and said, oh, they're not gonna raise rates, the market goes up. Stop playing that game. Look at uh, investing in businesses, which, by the way, if you've got a company or investment, a stock that you're looking at uh, uh, investing in, we're going to the phone lines here in about uh, 10 minutes or five minutes here. 833-288-0973. Um, Again, that's 833-288-0973. And as always, that gets you through for your unbiased, no strings attached, fundamental opinion about what you want to talk about. Uh, Harrison, we got to talk about investing, and uh, for that, let's talk about short-term versus long-term thinking. Last week's strong economic information means we'll probably see short-term rates on the three- and six-month T-bill perhaps climb to 5% in the near future. Now, don't get too excited about this. I want you to remember the old story about the tortoise and the hare. 
<laughs> do not drop <laughs> do not drop your high quality equities they're trading at reasonable valuations with decent dividends to rush into a 5% short term yield your short term thinking will destroy your long term investment results based on what we have in our portfolio i would even be willing to bet that we should outperform the short term treasuries remember in the fall equities are not looking um, remember in the fall equities are not looking where they are today but in the spring of 2024 and this is what people don't realize. I, and I saw another pundit on CNBC yesterday. Well, I'm going to go to two-year treasuries, and I'm going to get my 5% yield. I'm going to be uh, – that's much better than, than losing money here. Uh, well, wait a minute. You might go down for three months, four months, maybe even six months. But what happens when you're down in six months, and now things are on sale, and you're stuck in that two-year treasury because now rates went up a little bit more – that two-year treasury you put maybe $100,000 and is now worth $98,000. Now you're behind the curve. Well, I better wait till it goes back up. In the meantime, that goes back up. Equities go back up, and you missed a 5% gain on the equities. Try to get a, you know, 1%, uh, well, actually half percent per month is about what you're getting. Yeah, I see this a lot on the planning side of things as well because, you know, people have their investable dollars and then they have their liquid dollars. And whenever there's turbulent times, people are thinking, oh, well, you know, if I can, if I can, invest in a savings account or in, in T-bills or something like that and get a four to five percent yield. That that sounds pretty good. And it's like, um, I mean, you're not going to have volatility, but you're still losing to inflation. And we don't care about the next three months. We care about the next 10 years. And so right. you always have to make long term decisions whenever you're allocating your money, because if you're making the, the, the small little mistakes as you kind of take along that 10 years from now is going to ultimately be a, a large discrepancy. Yeah, and, and people just have that short-term thinking, and they want safety. What you have to realize when you invest, you're always, always going to have volatility. You always like it when it goes up. When it goes down, you're not happy about it, and it makes you make poor decisions. Don't worry about the short-term volatility. Short-term volatility, and we tell people to come over to us at a seven-year period, you are going to have a couple of years losing years. Mm -hmm. It's going to happen. Losing years, losing quarters, that's going to happen. But we're looking at where we'll be down the road three, five, seven years. Well, also, there is an, a very important distinction between volatility and risk. Yes. You hear these uh, risk tolerance, oh, well, my risk tolerance is aggressive or um, conservative or moderate or whatever it is. Um, all of that measures is just volatility, which is the short-term up and down up and down movement that we're seeing right now. That does not necessarily mean that something is risky. True risk is investing in something that over the next 10 years has a good chance of losing money. That is risky yep. and that's never something that you want to be investing in regardless of who you are. Um, but if you invest in something and then it goes down 10 or 20%, but 10 years from now, it's going to be up two or 300%. Mm -hmm. That's something that doesn't have a lot of risk maybe, but does have some volatility and it's okay to have volatility, but you don't want to have risk. And so many people get that wrong, especially a lot of advisors because they're like, okay, you know, you can't have any volatility. So we're just going to put you in these low risk things, which is T bills and cash right. and bond funds. And over the long term, that's, that's a mistake that a lot of people make. Right. And they, they also don't consider that, okay, inflation, uh, yeah, T-bills are, are state tax-free, but they're not federal tax-free. Mm -hmm. So many times after you take inflation, you take the taxes out, you have a negative return of perhaps, you know, 2 or 3%. Yeah. And had you just looked at investing, where you'll be. And this is why many times investors and people say, oh, it's not that hard to do. It is very hard to do because your emotions 
overcome the reality what you should do you're laughing what you got there <laughs> if it was easy then everyone would be rich but no one not that many people are right so. <laughs> right and, and and you know and it is when people say well how, how did you get to be I, I don't call myself rich but so wealthy and stuff i have never ever and I started investing. I got started late because I, I had a difficult time in the beginning, marriage and so forth. But I don't think I really started investing until about 27 years old. But since 27, I have never, ever taken one dime out of any investment that I did. I would rather find other ways to do it than take the money out because I knew I'd miss the compounding effect mm-hmm. longer term. And now that I have large portfolios, it's because of what I did. Gosh almost 40 years ago now. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. You've got more time than I have, Brent, but I'm the same exact way. Once I put money into an investment account, I have never withdrawn a cent of it. Yeah, and and see, you, I mean, well, actually now you're you're about, well, you know, you're about 30. I'm so 30, yeah. You're 30, yeah, so. <laughs> but, but I mean, I mean, you got an early start, uh, Chase, and I see a lot of these kids that are now in their early 20s with this early start where they, they have five, 10, maybe $15,000, and they're 23 years old, mm-hmm. I just, I'm amazed by that because they don't realize the compounding that that's going to do over the next 40 years because they started at 23. It's just, it just blows my mind how exciting that is. Well, it's the difference between, I mean, if someone starts 10 years earlier, that's the difference between retiring at 50 and retiring at 60. Yeah. So if you look at on that point, it's, you know, it's a huge difference, but when you're 20, oh, you know, I can put this off. I'm, I'm finally got a job and I'm making money. So I'll, I'll save later. And I think a lot of people don't understand how powerful compounding is, and right. that's that's why they don't get on top of it sooner. Right. And, and actually, my fiance's son, he lives with us. Uh, my son kind of lives with us, my younger son. And I'm lending these guys. I go, you can stay here, but you got to invest your money and save your money. I was, <laughs> and, and they have like, what is that, five-figure accounts now mm-hmm. because they're doing the right thing. And they don't realize being 20 years old, well, that's going to be worth 40, 50 years from now. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just phenomenal compounding. Don't ever take out, and I get so like, and I'll get back to the calls here. Right? <laughs> I, I, I get so like frustrated when I see somebody, oh, well, we're going to take out from our IRA or 401k to buy a house. That's a good thing, right? No, the taxes, the, the, the lost compounding, the penalties, it's not a good thing to do. Um, and you're, and they never look at the compounding of how that will compound over years to come. Yeah, opportunity cost. So, opportunity cost. So, well, if you like these topics we just talked about, we have others that uh, on the, the newsletter that we do. We talked about the Wall Street uh, Journal articles. We talk about recycling, uh, Valentine's Day, what happened with that. It's a free newsletter. It goes out every Friday at 5 o'clock. you got to sign up for it. Go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. And uh, you'll get it every Friday at 5 o'clock. A lot of great information there for you. So, again, smartinvesting2000.com. Numbers here, 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. Let's go to San Diego and speak with Todd. Todd, you're in the Smart Invest Show. Brent Chase, how can we help you? Good morning, gentlemen. Curious about your take on Old Dominion Freight Lines, ODFL. Okay, and do you hold that? Or are you looking to buy it? Looking to buy. You know, and I swear over the years past, I have looked at this before, and I just, because I don't forget the name, Old Dominion Freight Lines Incorporated. It sounds like a name <laughs> you're not going to forget. So let's take a look at it. Their symbol is ODFL. We do see in the trucking industry, only about a 5% float on it, only 77% institutional own. Not too bad, just kind of pointing that out there. We do have uh, December uh, 30th uh, numbers here, which is good. 
P.E. ratio does start off high at 27.9 versus 19. Price of sales, 6.1 versus 1. Price of tangible book value, 10.2 versus 26.8. That does favor the company. And then price of cash flow, 22.7 versus 10.7. Now, I do say good pay ratio, 1.9 versus 5.8. That's a positive. The lower that number, the better. <clears throat> now, we do see over the last year, uh, earnings were up 37% uh, for the company. Industry up 42.5%. Sales for Old Dominion were up 26.5%. Uh, I'm sorry, sales were up 19.1%, not quite as good as the industry, up 20.6%. We do see uh, the dividends, uh, they pay, ah, gosh, about a 0.5% dividend, half percent dividend. Uh, they use 10% of the earnings to pay that out. I wish that was a little bit higher. They have increased that dividend, it says, over the last year by 50%, so maybe we'll see more of that, uh, of that down the road. Look at the balance sheet, got a current ratio of 1.8 versus 2.9, that's okay. Gosh. Debt to equity zero for Old Dominion versus 0.4 for the industry, so the company has no debt. That is a big positive. We do see a net profit margin, 22% versus 6.2%. That's a nice return there because you like to see for every dollar they bring in, they keep 22 cents on the dollar. Return to equity for Old Dominion, 37.7 versus 26.4. Return on invested capital, also good, 36.4 versus 22.6. Now, the stock did close on Friday, at $339.54, the high has been $381.81, and the low, $231.31. So they are up about 19.6% uh, year-to-date, which is a big positive there. Let's see what the analysts say about this company going forward. We do see going out to December 2024, they're looking for earnings of $13.31. That is up from $11.98. You got 21 analysts. The range is like $11.70 to $14.50. Eh, that's not too bad. Uh, actually, 90 days ago, the earnings were $12.47, so it's positive to see that go, the, uh, those are going up. If I put a multiple and I can't do 16.6 in my head, so I do 15, I get a stock around $200 a share. Um, it's just not kind of looking worth it. I like the company. I like what they've done. But I think going forward, you're not going to have some big gains in this company. So I'd, I'd say I, I'd probably put a probably a sell on this company based on what I'm looking at the uh, uh, the, the values of it now. Yeah, 339 target sell price is probably around uh, 230, 240. Yeah, I, I, I don't like it. All righty. All right. Thank you, Jim. Okay, Tom, thanks for calling. Have a good one. Bye-bye. And I forgot to mention, Todd, too, the other thing I'm worried about right now, oil's around $71 a barrel. Um, I think oil could go up to $9 a barrel. That would be a big expense for a trucking company. So you got to think about that as well. And we like to find things on sale. All right, phone number's here, 833-288-28. Uh, gosh, I'm having a hard time today. 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. And Harrison, I did want to talk to you, too, about on financial plans. I know we got a couple topics. We didn't get them all last week. I want to make sure we get them this week. Uh, the big thing that people don't realize, like we always talk about the investment side, the investment side growing. We just talked about don't take out from it. What about when that changes and now somebody's retiring? What about the withdrawal rates? What are we going to do on that? Yeah, because that's the part that's really tangible that people people want to wrap their minds around. Because, again, the, the point of investing isn't just to hoard a bunch of money inside an account. The, the goal is to build an account that will ultimately produce <laughs> income. So you want to think of it, well, what is my income potential from this investment that I have? Um, so as far as a safe withdrawal rate in retirement goes, it depends on, you know, obviously how your money is invested. If you're someone who just 
holds cash all the time, then maybe a safe withdrawal rate would be nothing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, But it's much more difficult to manage your money when you're taking withdrawals compared to when you're in the growth stage. So when you're working, you're adding money to your 401k every month, it's really easy. You hate to see things go down, but you're not relying on that account for income. You still got a paycheck coming in. Once you make that transition and you retire, you no longer have that paycheck coming in. And now you have to start withdrawing income from your accounts and then things are also going down, it's much more difficult to remain objective with your investment decisions. Um, So what is a safe withdrawal rate? Lots of people use the 4% withdrawal rate as a rule of thumb. Um, Morningstar came out recently with a model that says, no, 4% is too much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it should actually be 3.8%. So if you want to withdraw $100,000 a year, that means you just went from needing $2.5 million to $2.63 million to withdraw 3.8% or $100,000 a year. Um, but if you look at where these numbers are came from, to come up with that 3% number, Morningstar uh, back-tested a rolling 30-year period using a portfolio of, and this is the key, 50% stocks and 50% bonds. Wow. So, first of all, you probably shouldn't have your portfolio 50% stocks and 50% bonds. Second of all, even if you did, it shouldn't be that allocation constantly for 30 years without any change. Um, How much you invest in bonds needs to be based on interest rates. And in a rising interest rate environment like the one we just experienced, Really, no one should be investing in bonds, regardless of your age or your risk tolerance, which mm-hmm. we don't really you know, follow the risk tolerance model. But regardless of who you are, <clears throat> you shouldn't have been investing in bonds through this inflationary period. Um, and then third of all, if that was the allocation every single year, you definitely shouldn't be paying an advisor to do that for you because they're not <laughs> making any changes for you. So, you know, 3% or 3.8% is a withdrawal rate. People see that and then that's the number that they focus on, but they don't look at, well, how is that number actually calculated? And it's pretty easy to pick apart the portfolio that we use to come up with that. Um, so when we look at investing um, and a lot of the clients that we work with are going through that retirement phase or are in retirement and have been for a long time, but we use a withdrawal rate of 6%. And Brent has been doing that for an extremely long time and it's worked fine, but- Well, uh, well over 20 years. Well over 20 years. Yeah. So we went through the 9-11, we went through the Great Recession, went through the the pandemic. It works when you do it right, but- um, yeah. and, and and that's the key. It's, it's not easy to invest money mm-hmm. to be able to pay out a 6% rate, which- you know, you increase over time as the account grows and things like that. But um, that's something tangible that people can rack their minds around. Because if you're trying to, you know, get to a 3.8% withdrawal rate and you're, you're trying to save that much, it's going to take you a lot longer to get there, especially if you are a risk tolerance of moderate or conservative and you're not getting any growth to begin with, you're, you're really never going to get there. But right. if you can grow your money effectively, and then once you transition, if you can allocate it in a way that you can withdraw up to 6% safely without depleting that account, because we never want to deplete money or, mm-hmm. or have a time when people um, run out of money. That's That 6% is into perpetuity. So if you can invest your money in that way, from a planning standpoint, it makes it easier because now we focus more on, well, how much 
should we withdraw for tax purposes? Um, should we do conversions? You know, how do we make sure that this money goes on to the next generation? So it's not a question of, well, how do we make sure you don't run out of money and how long do you have to work? It goes to, well, how soon can you retire? And, you know, how do we how, would, how do we look at the other situations? Right. Uh, and I do want to tell uh, Phil, uh, stay with us, Phil. We're going to get to you, but I, I want to comment more on this because what they've tried to come up with this set it as it is, asset allocation, like any you said, 50-50 is what Morningstar use. What we do at Wilsey Asset Management is we look at what's the best investment for the next two, three years. And when, when rates were going up, we said that you don't want to be in bonds. We look at, again, investing in businesses that pay very good dividends, grow those dividends. And we know, as I said earlier in the show, we know out of seven year period, you're going to have a couple losing years. But I always say it's like a chess game that we're planning ahead two to three moves we're playing ahead two to three years. We know on those distribution rates that we're going to have a down year. Uh, we'll cover that. We know how to take care of that, how we can get through that period on how we manage the portfolio. The other thing too, that people, they get emotional about it, and what they do is when they have that, they wanna sell the, punt, the positions that are down because they're panicking and keep the ones that are up. We do the opposite. We say, no, we know the rule of buying low and selling high works. It's the same thing that's in your portfolio. If we need money, we're not going to sell off the losers. We're going to sell off the, the ones we have a big position in that have very made good profits on and maybe even add to those losers because we know 12, 24 months down the road. Wow. Good thing we did that. So it's very hard to do. It takes a lot of discipline. It takes a lot of research, but we've had people that have done this for again, well over 20 years because we manage the money. We don't set it and then just sit back. I mean, and, and sometimes some of these financial planners, I think they're getting paid way too much because mm -hmm. anybody can do an out a portfolio 50-50 or 60% stocks, 40% bonds, just to uh, rebalance. Mm -hmm. Like that, that's... <laughs> Uh, now that can be done with robo advisors. Yeah, you know? especially if your if your goal is just to pay out three point cent three point eight percent of that. I mean, <laughs> anyone can do that. So. Yes. <laughs> and and it's just uh, and and Wall Street has come up with this way to try to get a lot of brokers to sell product and positions so that they can quote unquote manage money. To manage money takes a lot, and that's why we have you as a financial planner because financial planning takes a lot, managing money takes a lot no way possible somebody can do a good job at both and that's why we do it the way that we do it, and that's how it has to be done and i and i will say this to someone's face if they're a financial planner you cannot do a good job managing money and also a good job doing financial planning i'm sorry just no way possible yeah unless yeah. you only have two clients yeah it's <laughs> <laughs> probably not too bad <laughs> but can match what their fee must be if they're yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah it, it's just something that i think does scare a lot of people because you went from this paycheck to this withdrawal thing and how am i going to have this happen and again as i said I've, I've done it for well over 20 20 years for people i just talked to a client uh last week and he's been retired i think for almost that that long and he goes i never worry he goes, I've been with you for so long. He goes, I, I've seen it gone up and down over the years because we went through 9-11. We went through uh, the Great Recession. We went through, and people forget about the, the debt crisis with uh, Greece uh, mm -hmm. and, and all these things we've gone through. They forget about these things, but we go through it. Oh, and, and then back in, what was it, 2012 when we lost the rating on the AAA for the, for the government. I mean, all these things we've gone through, and people keep getting that check over and over again because we manage the money for conservatism 
and to make sure that their main objective is to get that 6% distribution rate. And the other thing about it too is the goal is to use essentially the growth from the account to pay out the income. So the principal, you know, goes up and down with mm -hmm. volatility on a short term, but over the long term it's preserved and it generally continues to grow as well. And so when people eventually pass and then their assets get transitioned to their heirs or their kids or whoever, now those kids inherit this pocket of money that's still producing the same amount of income. And so that that builds legacy wealth and generational wealth as opposed to just um, income for the for the people who, who are owning the account initially. And what people really miss is that we have, I'll just pick on an insurance company that we, we bought like probably uh, now probably 15, 20 years ago. Um, at the time we got a 3% dividend. Uh, it was about $40 a share was, was the, the price of the stock. Well, today it's now worth about $130 per share and the yield that we get based on this show investment is probably closer to 10%. We don't need to do things, you know, quickly to try to time the market or try to trade and so forth. We buy good businesses that we know will be here today. And actually right now from the high, that that, that insurance company is down, I think, I don't know, I think down a few percent uh, year to date or something. But I don't care because I'm saying, where's that going to be 2024, 2025? And I know I can count on those dividends coming in because of what that business has, what their balance sheet looks like and so forth. So many, many things that people kind of forget, like, oh, you, it, they don't realize why it takes us so long to invest in something because we want to know what that is. And then also once we have that business, how long we spend analyzing that business. I mean, right now we're spending a lot of time listening to the conference calls, looking at financial statements, looking at other things because, you know, earnings have come out since, uh, what, uh, oh, probably mid-January or so. Uh, I think we're just about done with those. But we listen to what the businesses that we have how they're doing and what we see going forward. So it, it is a tough thing, and you're the one that to go to you on the withdrawal rate on what to do, and you talk to them. We do, we you do it, but we actually do, I guess, the work to get the six percent. Yeah, How's that, that makes sense. Yeah, you, <laughs> you. Let's see. I'm the map, and you're the vehicle. I guess. Oh, I like that. So. That's, that's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> we're the vehicle. Can I be a Lamborghini? Sure. All right, cool. It's a lot. Of, you get somewhere a lot faster if you're in a Lamborghini versus a bicycle. There you go, and safer too, because right. uh, yeah, people don't realize how safe they are. So, <laughs> all right, phone numbers here: eight three three two eight eight zero nine seven three. Again, that's eight three three two eight eight zero nine seven three. Let's go up to San Marcos and speak with Phil. Phil, you're in the smart smart invest show, Brent Chase. How can we help you? Hey, good morning, uh, Brent Harrison. Um, Wanted to ask Harrison one question and then have you, uh, Brent, go over a company called MP Materials. Sure. MP, they uh, excavate rare earth materials, okay. uh, rare earth minerals. And then the question for Harrison is, what's the difference between a qualified dividend and a non-qualified dividend? I, I'm thinking it's a tax implication, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Absolutely. So, um there's ordinary income and then there's qualified income. So ordinary income would consist of things like wages, um, interest from bonds, uh, pensions, IRA withdrawals, uh, social security would be considered ordinary income. And so ordinary income gets applied to ordinary tax brackets. First tax bracket is 10%, then 12, then 22, and then 24, then 32, then 35, 37. So that's, that's all ordinary income. And most income falls into that category. And then there's a separate little bracket that deals with qualified dividends and also long-term capital gains. And so essentially, the income from those sources are going to be taxed at a lower rate than ordinary income is. So basically, 
if you have ordinary income that falls inside of the 10 or 12 percent bracket on the federal level for a married couple that's taxable income up to about ninety thousand dollars if you have qualified dividends or long-term capital gains the tax rate if your income is in that threshold is zero percent as opposed to 10 or 12. once you go above that ordinary income goes into the 22 and then 24 percent bracket but long-term <clears throat> Uh, capital gains and qualified dividends are then taxed at 15%. So they're always taxed a little bit less than their ordinary income counterparts. And in order to get a qualified dividend as opposed to an ordinary dividend, you need to hold a stock longer than, I think it's 120 days. So what that does is for people who are buying and trading, you know, on a, on a short-term uh, movement with stocks, and if they get any dividends, that would still be considered ordinary dividend, which is taxed at ordinary income rates. But if you buy a stock and then hold it for a longer period of time, all the dividends that you get from that are going to be qualified. And then you get that preferred tax treatment, which is also important because, um, you know, people look at bonds as an income source as they get older because right. they, sometimes <laughs> they pay a higher deal, yield, not right now because of interest rates still being relatively low as far as bonds go. But income that you get from bonds is considered interest, which is taxed at ordinary income, where if you hold good companies, in many cases, you're going to get a lot more appreciation, but also the dividends that you get are going to be taxed at a lower rate than bond income is. Unless you're a trader, there's another reason not to be a trader because I think you said if you hold it less than 120 days, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, so you get a dividend and you're trading the stock, you paid ordinary income. So then it's, again, then it's considered interest or yeah. taxed the same way as interest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we are not for traders at all. Yeah, it's exciting. It's fun. I say go to Vegas. Don't try to trade. But again, another reason why traders don't work out as well <clears throat> because you'll have to pay tax or get a nice dividend. Oh, sorry, ordinary income. Yeah, it's not just the short-term gains they might yeah. uh, get on the buying and selling. They also have the essentially short-term gain taxation on their dividends um, yep. from holding shorter yep. periods. So, Did that help out there, Phil? Yeah, totally. So it's basically um, <clears throat> non-qualified is when you hold for a short period of time <clears throat> only to get that dividend and then sell the stock right away. Correct. Yes, yes, exactly. Yep. Yep. So. No, thanks for explaining that in more layman's terms. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, I got to ask you, Phil. Frank, can you cover MP? Yes, yes. I was going to ask you, do you hold that, Phil, looking to buy in uh, MP materials here? Looking to buy. I'm actually looking. Uh, I was working with Ladia, and I'm going to throw some more money into our account, but I'm also looking at a company, MP, looking to buy. Okay, okay. And people don't know who Alati is. Alati is our assistant at Will CSM Management. So yes. I just want to been let there for a long time. Been there for <laughs> over 20 years, yeah. So so let's look at uh, MP Materials. Uh, they own the other industrial metals and mining industry. I've never seen that other industrial metals and mining industry. Uh, we do see a big float here on the short 11.7%. That seems like there could be some concerns there. Only 67% institutional owned. They do have a high PE ratio, 23.2 versus 8.3 for the industry. Price to sales, also expensive, 12 versus 1.3. Price to book value of 4.7 versus 21.5. That's the first pause I've seen so far. Price to cash flow, also expensive though, 18.5 versus 6.9. They do have a good peg ratio, which means you're not paying much for the future growth of the earnings there, 1.1 uh, versus 510. Now we do see the earnings were up 94.5% over the past year, well above the industry, up 25.2. Sales declined by 60.7% when the industry was down 35%, so that's a positive there. Their five-year growth rate, 27.3% versus 1.2, that's a positive. 
they do not pay a dividend looking at the balance sheet here we do see current ratio 18.2 versus 3.9 uh that is too much liquidity because i'm i'm worried why do you have so much liquid can't you invest that do something better with that 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 does kind of worry me a little bit there debt to equity 0.6 versus 0.4 that's okay net profit margin 50.8 versus 28.5 return equity is 21.8 versus 50.5 um, I, you know, I was going to say this may be a, a limited partner, uh, a master limited partner, but it's not because I don't pay a dividend. So I'm wondering why I'm getting such strange numbers here uh, on that current ratio. I'm still thinking up about something else on that. I'm not sure why that's there. Looking at the stock price, we do see the current price is $33 a share. The high was $60.19, uh, the low $23.50. Year to date, they're still up 35.9%. Let's take a quick look at those uh, numbers going forward for the uh, earnings here. We see uh, for this year, looking for $1.43. Next year is supposed to go down to $1.28. You got nine analysts, a big range here. The low estimate, 77 cents. The high, 230. That does worry me about that $1.28. They can't really you know, come to a better conclusion. That could mean you won't hit that $1.28. About the same as it was about 90 days ago. If I put a multiple of about 15 on that, I get a stock price of around, what, uh, 15, about 18, 19, 20. It's probably worth around $20 a share. Um, as I said, the stock is now trading at, what I say, uh, Thirty-three dollars a share. Thirty-three. Yeah, it is, yeah, it's just too expensive. You've had that nice run up. I know the high was sixty. That could have been way out of uh, out of line. Uh, up thirty-five percent year to date. Yeah, I'm, I'm just not. Uh, I don't like to buy things on a high price. I, I like to get them on sale. Not be the guy that comes in after the sale's over. Already. All right. Thanks, Brent. You okay. guys have a good weekend and stay dry. All right. You too, Phil. Thanks for calling. Thanks, Phil. Bye bye. All, right. All right. That does open the phone line. Eight three three. Two eight eight zero nine seven three. That's eight three three two eight eight zero nine seven three. Here's I know we also want to talk about the uh, what was it called the act here that came out the Secure Act. You had something on there about the changes with Ross or something like that. Yeah. So let, let's address that real quickly here. Yeah. So um, I've talked about some of the changes in the past RMD age uh, stuff that you can do with five twenty nine planes or rollovers, but it, it looks like. There's a few different components in the Secure Act 2.0 that is addressing Roth contributions. So, um, so far, if you receive an employer match on your retirement account, like a 401k, that match always has to be um, come on a pre-tax basis. So you yourself can be making Roth contributions to your plan, but the match is always going to be pre-tax. And then that portion plus the growth attributable to it uh, will be taxable when you withdraw in retirement. But now with the new SECURE Act, employees have the option to receive their match as a Roth contribution. So this means that that Roth match would be taxable when you receive it, but then it grows tax-free retirement. And this is effective immediately. So this is something that employees mm. can do right now. And then starting next year, January 1st, 2024, um, all catch-up contributions to retirement <laughs> plans must be Roth for employees whose compensation is over $145,000. So the normal contribution limit this year is $22,500 for 401ks, 403bs, 457 type plans. And then employees who are 50 or older can make an additional $7,500 catch-up contribution, which brings the total amount to uh, $30,000. 
But starting next year, employees can still make that normal contribution, 22500 pre-tax. Um, but if they want to do that extra catch-up contribution, it has to be made as a Roth, again, if your income's over 145000 Now, that's something you and I have to talk about because you're my financial planner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I know I, I do have the wonderful problem of having so much into my 401k uh, that the distributions are going to be taxed very high. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing we'll probably look at next year. Will that benefit me to, in, instead of doing them the, the match, I guess, into uh, the 401k regular, maybe do some in Roth or something, what you're thinking, maybe help out a little bit. Yeah, I mean, f- with your situation, it, it also can help on the estate planning side of things because oh, yeah? one of the... One of the benefits of a Roth type of account is you're not subject to required minimum distributions like a uh, like a pre-tax 401k is. Yep. So um, the money's always going to be tax-free in a Roth, but the fact that you get to keep more of your money in that tax-preferred account as opposed to in a pre-tax account that got the deferral and the pre-tax um, contribution, once you get turn 75, you have to start taking that money out and paying taxes on it. And in many cases, if you don't need it, that just has to go into some other type of investment that isn't quite uh, tax favored. But with the Roth, you don't have to take those distributions. That money gets to stay in that tax-free account, which is Mm -hmm. a benefit. So what that means is, you know, you have more money growing more efficiently, but then also for your estate reasons, there adds more liquidity that can be used to pay estate taxes. And it's better for your heirs because they still have to deplete that account over 10 years, like with a pre-tax account, but it's still tax-free to them as well. So they can wait until the 10th year, get all that additional 10 years of compounding, then pull it out the 10th year as opposed to a pre-tax account where you might want to take it in chunks over time so that you don't have a huge tax liability. And I'm still about 20 years away from my retirement, so mm-hmm. I, I still want to kind of plan for that. But you brought up a good point as well. That's another thing I think people don't think about. You mentioned the estate taxes. Mm-hmm. Many times people just focus on one and not the other. And the estate taxes, I, I think right now, what is the, it's what, 13 million, which is a pretty high level. Per person, yeah. Per, per person. Mm-hmm. But I believe that's going to be, perhaps the concern is that could be coming down which people don't realize when you start adding your 401k, you start adding your real estate, sometimes there could be people that have to worry about estate taxes who maybe didn't have to worry about it before. Yeah, I mean, it, a lot of people haven't been too concerned about it because for a married couple, it's about 25, $26 million is the amount that can go to heirs tax-free. Um, but I, I am getting married uh, uh, July 15th, so I'll, I'll, I guess I'll get to that higher level. A little bit. Your situation is a little bit different. Oh, I, I never <laughs> seem to get the good stuff. Um, but... One of the tax laws that's expected to change is starting in 2026, that number should be cut in half. So instead of, you know, 25, 26 million, it would go to then 13 million for a married couple. So um, the for a person, it'd be like six to seven million. So if wow. you're if you're above that, you really have to do some planning. And there are things that you can do about it, depending on the size of your estate. You know, if, if you have a net worth um 10 million or above, then usually you can get around it without too sophisticated of planning. If, if you get too much more above that, then you have to look at stuff like um, certain types of trusts that you can use to sell or, or, or gift to heirs, and then they pay you back with the income from the asset that you sold to them. So there are things to do, um, but a lot of people, I think, have been so concerned about the income tax side of it as opposed to the estate tax side of it, which is kind of the next level that um, I think more and more people are going to have to worry about because what I mean, the government wants tax dollars, right? We we just spent one point seven trillion dollars on this uh, Secure Act two point oh, right. so and we're spending money all over the place. So we're going to need to raise tax revenue, and 
from you know a standpoint of well where's where's the best place to get capital sometimes heirs people that inherit money use that money efficiently and are good stewards of capital but I think probably the majority are not, at least in our experience, when we have clients that you know pass away and then their um, 30 or 40 year old kids and inherit that money, it's usually gone pretty quickly because they right. kind of spend through it. And so um, that might be an area where the government says, well, you know, we've been pretty lenient on these estate taxes. We could reduce that limit down even more than that, mm -hmm. which would, would subject a lot more families to that. So. Um, the Roth account can be maybe not a tool to avoid the estate taxes, but it could be a tool for helping um, pay for some of those estate taxes if there are going to be any. But that's another issue where you have to look at the planning beforehand and, and you need time to do that. Like we have we have one client who's um, in her 90s and there's not that much time to get ahead of it. So right. it's the estate tax there. We did as much as we can, but when you're someone who's in your, you know, 60s and 70s and you have a sizable estate that's continuing to grow, um, that's the time that you need to be taking advantage of it. Because in many times to enact a real estate plan for a wealthy person, it'll take, you know, 10 or 20 years to actually make it make a difference. And one thing too, I, I remember years ago, I read the book, The Millionaire Next Door. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people don't realize, and I've said many times myself, I don't feel like I'm, I'm any different than I was like 40 years ago. I still feel like I don't have much money. Uh, <laughs> says, look in your garage. Well, okay, <laughs> I, I am a car guy. But anyways, moving on. Um, people don't realize, you know, again, we've got clients that have a good retirement account. They have a good investment account. They might have one or two rental properties. And over time, over 10 years, all of a sudden they can change their estate situation dramatically to where now estate taxes were, are gonna be a problem, especially if they're, they're if we got the opposite here. They're increasing their values and the governments are trying to decrease yeah, what exactly. it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they could run that problem down the road. Well, I think a lot of people think that as soon as they retire, their net worth is gonna you know, stop increasing, right. which for a lot of people does not happen. And in many cases, your net worth could still be doubling every 10 years or so. Yeah. And so if you retire at 60 and you're worth, you know, $5 million, well, at 70, that's 10. And then at 80, that's 20. And yeah. then at 90, that's, you know, 40. 40. Yeah. So now you've, you've got potential estate tax issues. Now, if you start looking at that in your 60s and 70s, yeah, there's ways that you can avoid paying any estate taxes at all. But right. if you don't do that, then you essentially won't be paying the taxes, but your estate will. And the 40% of everything, everything above that limit is an extremely large it, number. It just amazes me how it jumps already 40%. It's yeah. not like progressive, <laughs> like, okay, you go from zero, 40%. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. and that, that number could be increasing as well because it, it's been 40%, but they've talked about increasing it to 45%, which is you know still large. There are some states out there that also have um, estate taxes. California does not, but there are some out there where in, in additional to the 40, 45% federal estate tax, you've also got a state, I, I, you estate know, taxes. I forget about that. I'm surprised California doesn't have I know. state taxes. I know it. We shouldn't talk about it because yeah. that could be coming, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I, I'm surprised I don't, because now we magically have a deficit that we had a surplus of, I forget how many billions it was last year. Now, so we have a deficit, but uh, just be careful that we could have that coming in California. I'd hate to say that. But um, phone numbers here, 833-288-0973. Uh, last week, I did not get to do any of our emails. We do take emails on questions. We know some people can't you know, make it into make the phone calls and so forth. Uh, if you want to send us a question by email, go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. Uh, just read out your your uh, question there. We'll read it on air. We'll answer it for you. This came from a Zach. 
He said, uh, I just noticed that Devon Energy has a dividend of 8.37. I'm assuming it's many percent. Their institutional ownership is almost 80%. Their debt to equity is low, and the return on equity is better than the industry. And their Ford peg is only 0.3, according to Stock Rover. The price to book value is a bit high, but it doesn't seem like there are a lot of red flags, or are there? Question mark. Is Devon a buy or at, uh, at its current price? So let, let's take a look at Devon Energy. Their symbol is DVN. They're in the oil and gas ENP industry. Only 2% short on the float, 77% institutional owned. We do see a very nice PE ratio of six versus 5.8. That means you're only paying six times earnings. That's pretty darn good. Uh, we do see price of sales 1.9 versus 1.7. Price of tangible book value 3.5 versus 6.8. And price to cash flow. 4.2, just slightly above the industry at 3.9. Now, unfortunately, I do not see a peg ratio here. The industry is at 1.2. Now, over the last year, the earnings for Devon Energy grew by 118%. That is not quite as good as the industry at 134%. But gosh, growing those earnings at 117%, you gotta be very happy with that. Uh, the sales did increase by 57%. The industry was up 553 now, here's a problem. The, the analysts show a five-year earnings per share growth estimate of a negative 5.1% for Devon Energy, but a positive 13.8 for the industry. So I'm not sure why they're not seeing something good for Devon Energy going forward, but I would want to look at that a little bit deeper. You do get a 6.5% uh, yield uh, on the dividend. I know, uh, Zach, you did say 8.37. Maybe that was a dollar amount because the dividend yield is actually 6.5%. Very important as a payout ratio for a company. 56.5 is a payout ratio, so that's a very comfortable one I feel good with. Look at the balance sheet, got a current ratio of 1.3 versus 1.5. Debt equity, 0.6, that's the same as the industry, so not a not a debt problem here compared to their equity. Uh, we do see that, uh, let's see, wait, 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 I lost my uh, spot here. Net, net profit margin, 31.4 versus 28.6. Return on equity, very good, 53.4 versus 35.8. Now the the cop the stock did close at $55 on Friday. The high's been 79.40. The low is 48.86. Year to date's down 10.6. So you could be getting, getting something on sale here. Let me take a quick look at the analysts here to see what they're saying for it going forward. Uh, going out to December 2024, we're looking for earnings of $7.34. Uh, the 19 analysts had that big range here, unfortunately, the low 482, the high 1043, about the same as what they're looking for 2023, $7.43. Now, that estimate at 734 for December 2024 is actually down from $7.78 since 90, 90 days ago, so that could be a concern. Put a multiple of a 15, 16 on that, you get a stock price somewhere around probably 120 or so. Um, as I said, the stock right now is about, uh, what, 55. That looks good. I like everything I'm seeing on this company, except I don't understand why the analysts have a negative 5.1% growth rate over the next five years. Uh, this is where I think this is definitely worth spending the time on this company. But for us to actually look at it 10, 15, 20 hours, because I want to understand what are the analysts seeing negatively that everything else I'm seeing is a pretty positive. So definitely worth the research, but uh, understand the business. So, and that's what we do all the time is I, and I get so excited doing that. Oh yeah, <laughs> you, know? you can hear it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it's so important how we marry things up because again, this is why Chase and I can spend all our time analyzing, reading, 
and uh, in, interpreting all these different things and you spend all your time doing the financial planning and understanding rules, regulations, tax laws, estate laws, all these different things. Yeah, I mean, it, it's fun for us. We enjoy to do it. You guys like the investing side. I like the planning side. Um, so it works really well. And everything that we do, we apply in our own lives. I mean, yeah, we, we practice what we preach, definitely. I do have a problem with the cars. I, I, I just, I'm, I'm like the million next door, except for the cars. It's all relative. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's relative. So if you have the cash flow, it's fine. Yeah, and they have appreciated. So there that's, you go. That's <laughs> <I'm saying. laughs> right. Well, there's a closing bell. Thank you for listening to the Smart Investing Show. It is for informational purposes only and should not be used as investment advice. If you'd like to discuss in more detail your investment needs, have other investment questions, feel free to call myself Brent Wilsey or Chase Wilsey at 858-546-4306. That's 858-546. 546-4306. And again, for a financial plan, call Harrison at the same number. Or go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. A lot of great information there. Thanks for listening to the show. We'll be back next week right here on the Smart Investing Show. Have a great day. We'll talk with you soon. To think that I did all that And may I say